Hello and welcome back to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp, but I'm here with a wonderful group of actors that is going to take us through an exploration of Act 4 of The Two Gentlemen, or are they, of Verona. Um, <laughs> here at Tabling, we like to take a text, we cast it, we start reading through it, and then we pause, and we talk, and we exchange ideas, and we have debates, and people get fiercely involved and fiercely involved is the way i like my actors so without further ado <laughs> let's jump right in and meet the outlaws who are these people um in, of act four scene one okay take whatever all of you are ready <laughs> fellows stand fast i see a passenger there be ten shrink not but down with them Stand, sir, and throw us what you have about ye. If not, we'll make you sit and rifle you. Sir, we are undone. These are the villains that all the travelers do fear so much. My friends. It's not so, sir. We are your enemies. Peace, we'll hear him. Aye, by my beard will we, for he is a proper man. Then know that I have little wealth to lose. A man I am crossed with adversity. My riches are these poor habiliments of which if you should hear disfurnish me, you take the sum and substance that I have. Whither travel you? To Verona. Whence came you? From Milan. Have you long sojourned there? Uh, some 16 months and longer might have stayed if crooked fortune had not thwarted me. What, were you banished thence? I was. For what offense? For that which now torments me to rehearse. I killed a man whose death I much repent, but yet I slew him manfully in fight without false vantage or base treachery. Why ne'er repent it if it were done so? But were you banished for so small a fault? I was, and held me glad of such a doom. Have you the tongues? My youthful travel therein made me happy, or else I oft had been miserable. By the bare scalp of Robin Hood's fat friar, this fellow were a king for our wild faction. We'll have him. Uh, sirs, a word. Master, be one of them. It's an honorable kind of thievery. A peace, villain. Tell us this. Have you anything to take to? Nothing but my fortune. Know then that some of us are gentlemen, such as the fury of ungoverned youth thrust from the company of awful men. Myself was from Verona banished for practicing to steal away a lady, an heir, and near allied unto the duke. And I from Mantua for a gentleman who, in my mood, I stabbed unto the heart. And I for such like petty crimes as these. But to the purpose, for we cite our faults that they may hold excused our lawless lives, and partly, seeing you are beautified with goodly shape, and by your own report, linguist and a man of such perfection as we do in our quality much want. Indeed, because you are a banished man, therefore above the rest, we parley to you. Are you content to be our general? To make a virtue of necessity and live as we do in this wilderness? What sayest thou? 
Wilt be of our consort? Oh, say I and be the captain of us all. We'll do thee homage and be ruled by thee. Love thee as our commander and our king. But if thou scorn our courtesy, thou diest. Thou shalt not live to brag what we have offered. I take your offer and will live with you, provided that you do no outrages on silly women or poor passengers. We detest such vile, base practices. Come, go with us. We'll bring thee to our crews and show thee all the treasure we have got, which, with ourselves, I'll rest at thy dispose. (laughs) Who are these guys? (laughs) They're they're ex-noblemen who were done wrong by society. Society's to blame. Society is for a leader. Right? There is a vacuum here. Yeah. (laughs) There is a power vacuum. And I really respect that they acknowledge there's a power vacuum. Yeah. Um there is something I feel like we got the sort of one-two comedy punch of uh speed and then Lancelot's. And then I feel like Shakespeare was like, well, let's try out a couple more comedic characters so we could have a couple more, you know, action figures at intermission for people to buy. Like, that's kind of what these guys feel like to me. Um, But I also get a little bit of thread of um, Duke Sr. and As You Like It and the sort of off we go to the forest where everything is great. And I love it. They're like, well, kill you. But we don't actually kill people. You know, like there's there's kind of a really, there's something really unthreatening about these guys. <laughs> now I know, uh, Izzy, you played one of these outlaws in the production you were in. Can you Can you tell us a little bit about like what that experience was? Um, I, I played the one that I'm doing now. And oh, I, I didn't know that. Cool. Um, it's, they're just, it makes no sense, like trying to rationalize. So I was more going off of, in the end, the character, I, what my costume was, to be honest, because um, each of the outlaws was kind of, um, <laughs> oops, um, each of the outlaws was kind of given like a different, like, outcast but more like scene kid look so I was completely like hippied out which makes it really hard to threaten people um but also makes sense why it's like no don't we're gonna do this and then the next second be like oh my god you're so cool will you like come with us like oh my god um so I feel like my the particular show I was in was uh you know was obviously going for a certain thing but I find it just really hard if you're ever trying to rationalize anything they say because it's not just like it's not just like oh it's a front we actually love you because there's like something else that's just like we're just silly like it just feels like they were written just to be silly but I also love the line (laughs) by the bear scalp of Robin Hood's fat fryer because I just think like okay (laughs) yeah totally throw that in there for fun join our band of merry men yes (laughs) exactly (laughs) miles did you have something something to add about these outlaws 
Oh, and I was I was basically going to say what uh, Izzy said that like uh, <laughs> that the bare scalp of the fat fryer they, they just they're just kind of like uh, pantomime outlaws basically they're kind of there to uh, provide a little bit of uh, little fris like, ooh little yeah. frisson ooh to the play. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, and I think it's interesting, right? Because Valentine does join them, and 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 like that decision happens so quickly i think it's interesting he chooses to go with i killed a guy and i was banished instead of like (laughs) something else and interestingly that happens in act one scene one of taming of the shrew when lucentio decides to switch clothes with tranio so that tranio his servant can become lucentio and then the other servant biondello comes in and is like who what ah like you've switched clothes i don't know who's who and and the excuse that lucentio gives is like biondello i killed a guy and tranio is like saving me by pretending to be me and then that excuse lasts for about like half a scene before it's like very clear that biondello is going to be worked it so it's this very strange in these in these early comedies this excuse of like i killed a guy i did time man you know anyway uh mitch (laughs) yeah well the way you just said that the second time i think like actually i think is is sort of relevant here i think that he's he's gaining some credibility right so that they're not going to hurt him um right like that that lie is to try to keep him safe i also love um, I, I love these characters. I don't know what it is. I freaking love these characters. Um, they're, they're probably other than Crab and, and Lance Lance's relationship with Crab. They're my favorite part of this play. And I think there is something about them being, there being some semblance of nobility among them and w- with Valentine, I mean, like being like good people who don't actually like hurt people, right? That like is nice in juxtaposition to Proteus, like causing all this harm, which is what we've been watching for like a while. (laughs) And it's like nice to get out into the forest. And I, I, I always feel sort of like cleansed after Mm. reading or hearing this scene uh, in a nice way. (laughs) I, and I think dramatically that is what's going on is we're getting us a slight comedic break. Act three was really rough. So we're now getting a slight comedic break before we go into the ickiness of of the proteus sylvia scene and then the sort of i think almost uh redemption of the julia sylvia interaction at the end and, of Act yeah and they're unlike the other comedic characters they're not like mean to each other right they're not like teasing each other really <laughs> they're, they're just sort of nice <laughs> i love it um sam <laughs> um I'm really struck about sort of the structure of this scene. And the first time I like expectations and audience expectations and my own expectations as a reader when I went through it the first time. Um, The first thing that I think is, is that, you know, when you first see Outlaws, there's no indication that this is going to be a funny scene at the top of it, you know? Um, And in fact, in like sort of structure, it almost feels like, oh, well, here's like another bad thing that's going to happen to one of our two main characters before we get them out on the other end. 
And the first line that you sort of get that the turn is that's not so, sir. We are your enemies. Like the need, the need for this correction before anything else happens. And then the other gotcha that I think is in the text, which is really interesting, is my first time through. I so thought that where Valentine was at at this point in time, that the scene was going to be like, uh, I've already been robbed of everything. Like you can rob me of everything else and you can take my life because there's nothing else for me to live for in the world now that I am divorced from my love. And I was expecting like, I, I kind of got the sense that the outlaws and I read a synopsis, we're gonna rally around him, but I thought it was gonna be like this, oh, look at how his heart strings like play and we shall take you. And I thought it was gonna be that kind of, for, for Valentine to just immediately be like, I killed somebody. Like, you don't wanna, <laughs> like, I have nothing on me and I just murdered a man in cold blood <laughs> and I would do it again if I could is, yeah. is so not what I was expecting and is really funny to me and also kind of speaks to a resilience, like, and we're comparing these two men. Um, there's sort of a resilience to Valentine here that he, his heart is broken, but it's not just like all heartbreak. Whereas I feel like if this situation had been reversed with Proteus, we almost would have the version of the scene that I was expecting going into it. Interesting, huh? Um, yeah. And, and, you know, maybe that's wrong because he's like this dissembler, but the lie here, like if you just take the quality of lies between the two of them too, is really interesting where Proteus is so much more in that Iago space of lying by telling truths and all of this other stuff. Whereas this is, again, it's just this really bold, really fun. Oh no, I killed a guy. Yeah. I ate his heart. Like that's kind of, and it's really great. And they are just these levels of the scene absolutely tickles me to no end. Yeah, I, 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 I very much agree. Um, I think there is, there's joy in this scene. There's joy to be found in this sort of interactions between the characters. Also speed too, of speed being like, oh my God, we're going to die. Actually, I would totally be down to live here. Are you good? You know, I get that also. That switch is fantastic. Um, Izzy and Colin, did you have something? Um, it was actually gonna good timing because it was about the speed interaction. I think it's just really fun. Like, it's just great that they're like, this guy who throughout the first part of the play has just been like, I'm pretty chill. I'll, you know, I'll go back and forth with you is now like, oh my God, <laughs> like, please help. Um, and just that switch, of course, which is always funny if you can get the quick switch in there. Um, I also, I just think the line um, at the end, the one that's like, oh, no, we won't, we would never do stuff like that. Like, I think that can be a really funny moment. Like, they say they're gonna rifle them. Do they steal something early on? Do they give it back later when they're like, no, we don't do that. Oh yeah, take your take your thing back. Um, and just like, I just like seeing a character that has kind of had this talking of status, high status in terms of, you know, like wit and all of this be like, oh my God. Um, I don't know, I find that. Did you, <laughs> while our hand is up, do you have anything? Oh, I, the collective yeah. hand. <laughs> collective hand. Um, yeah. Um, 
I fully agree with what you said, Ariana. It's it's amusing the immediate shift, and uh, I, I guess I, I I still don't know how to feel about Speed towards the end of this because he like fizzles out of this play. <laughs> I mean, just looking at the line counts, it's like, oh yes, comedy, 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 and dead. And I like to think that it's um, the play no longer needs to rely on the comedy of Speed. Like we're finally getting more into the, the the thick of things with the plot. And so like, I guess too much comedy could, well, actually I shouldn't be saying this because for some reason we have outlaws now, but um, yeah, I feel like Speed is getting upstaged. So <laughs> a little offended by the scene in a way. <laughs> um, I, I, I love what he has, but, um, and then I, I guess, um, our little line breakdown here says I have four lines, but I only read three. So maybe there's a mystery line that I, I'm unaware of. But um, yeah, it, it's a little sad that Speed's going away, but um, I think it's his time. <laughs> it, it does remind me of a conversation that we had with Henry IV Part Two, where we were sort of realizing it's so funny how many new comedic characters are in Part Two, like Pistol and Shallow and silence and and it's like and marty who was playing falstaff was commenting it's like shakespeare was like falstaff was such a huge hit shakespeare's like and now introducing pistol do you like pistol how's it going do we like him okay he's in uh, he's in henry five woohoo and then like shallow do we like shot so it's like it's like all of these different comedy types right that that are being introduced that are not that are not the same and in fact they'll comment on each other the way speed comments on the outlaws right which is really interesting um miles you had your hand up that and then uh sam oh it uh it uh, it related it did relate to something uh sam said that uh and kind of like when uh when Valentine uh, talks about how he killed a person, I mean, I, I wasn't expecting that either. You know, it's like, wait, when did that happen? Did I miss something? But yeah, but yeah, it is, it just is kind of like, uh, it is kind of in that, you know, tradition, you know, it's just like throughout history, you find examples of uh, people, mostly, uh, mostly men telling lies about their own lives to make themselves seem more interesting and, uh, dangerous and worthy of respect and uh it's just kind of uh, just kind of interesting to see that to kind of see then i guess for a moment valentine is kind of back in the role of like the uh like the the buff guy and like the buff guy in the charles atlas ads do you know those <laughs> old ones and, and uh and before well, he's they, kind of they talk about what he looks like right too they're like you look you look good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's like such a funny thing. That's... Yeah. Robin, Robin Hood was handsome. So I guess you should be our new leader yeah. now. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that connection a lot that like, Hey, nobody, we, we have like many fat friars in our outlaw band, but we really need yeah. a Robin Hood. Like we're all yeah, little John, yeah, a little John, a maybe, a, maybe one, maybe one will Scarlet, but uh <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like we need our we need our Robin Hood. Oh, I love that, uh, Sam. Um, I also just from like a his like the, the the history person in me. I, I think that this scene is also just really fascinating because we're treating it like a joke that there are all these nobles around, and there is kind of this joke because God knows, like one like one of the guys just got banished for the exact same thing that I was banished for, actually. 
which is which is funny. But I think at the same time too, the part of the humor is also a little bit like real to life, and we're missing the real to life humor part of it, which is when you have all of these second and third and fourth sons of nobility that don't really have much of a place in society after being, they're not gonna inherit their, maybe they'll get like a merchant's contract. Like they're, they're kind of just useless. Unless if one of their older brothers dies, they don't really serve a function in society. And if they're getting in trouble and they're getting banished, especially in Italy, which is just a bunch of warring little states at this time, and everybody's going to play mercenary, they actually represent a real problem for people that are around. And so I think that there's sort of a double joke that we're missing here because we're not of the time period anymore where the idea mm -hmm. of nobility turning bandit isn't actually that far off from the truth because if you're a third son and you just tried to sneak into some Lord's daughter's room and you've been banished, you don't really have that much more options. Like this is a real thing yeah. that was happening all throughout Europe in this time. And so I think that there's like a layer of comedy then that, that, that we miss because at first it's real, then it's funny again, because they're actually gentlemen, right? Like they're all nice. It's not like they're not cutthroat. Like these are the genteel bandits that you wouldn't actually be seeing even though there's all these gentleman bandits running around. And so I think that that's this, really cool, interesting dichotomy here that Shakespeare's working with that gets lost through historical translation. Mm, absolutely. I also just cannot help but think of, what's that one Monty Python sketch where John Cleese is like the highwayman with the lupins who's like, stand and deliver your lupins. Like I kind of get that vibe from this a bit. Um, Dennis Moore, Dennis Moore, riding through the woods, you know, like, and he's like stealing lupins from the rich to give to the poor. And I, I, I very much get that vibe from, from the scene. Um, yeah, Jane. <laughs> um, yeah, sort of, I guess, building on that, perhaps tangent related. It, it's really funny to me when at the end of the scene, the first outlaw is trying to be threatening, but if thou scorn our courtesy, thou diest, right? Yeah. Yeah. The second I was like, ah, thou shalt not live to brag about what we've offered. And then it's like, okay, yeah, but you you don't hurt like, you know, the weak and women and that, oh no, no, we would never do that. Like the, it, it's, it is kind of Python-esque, right? It's well, we're gonna threaten yeah. you. Oh, but we would never actually harm anybody in the- Yeah. And, exactly. and it's funny how Valentine plays it too. It's almost like he knows, right? From the very beginning, he's like, my friends, like he knows how to, somehow connect with these cats in a way that's not gonna get him in speed killed, right? Um, and it's funny that he just kind of goes immediately to, I'm not gonna let these people trouble me. Um, yeah. I don't know how he knows, but he just is kind of like nonchalant about the whole thing. Yeah. And then I, I just love my, my second outlaw line, um, that, that I just, you know, cause I was in a mood, I stabbed a guy and all I could think of was Camus, the stranger. I was like, hey, you know, it's hot. I just felt like it. <laughs> I just off the guy. I hadn't done it. Felt like trying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes you get in that mood. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I do, it makes me wonder the way in which all of the things, all of their excuses for why they were banished 
also makes me wonder if they're making it up too because there's there's like the line like yeah 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 i i i killed a guy and then and then the first outlaw is like yeah and i did something similar <laughs> you know like there's just like very little effort put into like coming up with what the exact crime was um which is you know which is and none of those are petty crimes right yeah you don't get an abduction are not petty crimes i'm sorry ellen what was that (laughs) no it's just it's just funny how valentine so readily goes with them at the end that just makes me think they don't come across as particularly gruesome or intimidating individuals otherwise why would he so readily agree to be their leader and I also like the distinction, <clears throat> the qualifier that Valentine says, provided you do no outrages on silly women or poor passengers, which begs the question, does he want to, would, would it be okay to do outrages on, you know, not silly women and rich passengers? <laughs> exactly. Well, and silly in this context here, which interestingly uh, means helpless or defenseless. So defenseless women and poor travelers, which is interesting. That 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 does to me give off very Robin Hood vibes. Um, totally. Well, awesome. Shall we move on to Act Four, Scene Two? We get another moment alone with Proteus. Proteus really gets a huge amount of time with the audience. Yeah, go ahead, Colin. Sorry, before we fully lay speed to rest, I would like to oh. posit a baseless bad faith theory that uh, the two gentlemen refer to Speed and Lance. Goodbye. I love it. Mike, don't drop the mics. They're very expensive. But yes, Mike, drop. Um, I think we're going to feel the repercussions of speed even in, we're going to feel speed's absence in this act and particularly in act five. RIP speed. Um, Cool. Let's go into four two, Mitch, whenever you are ready. Already have I been false to Valentine. And now I must be as unjust to Cheerio. Under the color of commending him, I have access my own love to prefer. But Sylvia is too fair, too true, too holy to be corrupted with my worthless gifts. When I protest protest true loyalty to her, she twits me with my falsehood to my friend. When to her beauty I commend my vows, she bids me think how I have been forsworn in breaking faith with Julia, whom I loved. And notwithstanding all her sudden quips, the least whereof would quell a lover's hope. Yet, spaniel-like, the more she spurns my love, the more it grows and fawneth on her still. But here comes Cheerio. Now must we to her window and give some evening music to her ear. How now, Sir Proteus? Are you crept before us? Aye, gentle Cheerio, for you know that love will creep in service where it cannot go. Aye, but I hope, sir, that you love not here. Sir, but I do, or else I would be hence. Who? Sylvia? Aye, Sylvia, for your sake. I thank you for your own. Now, gentlemen, let's tune, and to it lustily a while. Now, my young guest, methinks your alley collie, I pray you, why is it? Marry, mine host, because I cannot be merry. Oh, come, we'll have you merry. I'll bring you where you shall hear music and see the gentleman you asked for. But shall I hear him speak? Aye, that you shall. That will be music. Hark, hark. Uh, Is he among these? Aye, but peace, let's hear him. 
So it's, yes. Yeah. Mitch, would you just mind just, you don't have to sing it, even though I know you have a beautiful <laughs> singing voice. Um, would yeah, you I'll mind read just reading yeah. the lines? Thank totally. Who is Sylvia? What is she that all our squains commend her? Holy, fair, and wise is she. The heavens such grace did lend her. That she might admired be, is she kind as she is fair? For beauty lives with kindness. Love doth to, love doth to her eyes repair to help him of his blindness, and being helped inhabits there. Then to Sylvia let us sing that Sylvia is excelling. She excels each mortal thing upon the dull earth dwelling. To her let us garlands bring. Oh no, are you sadder than you were before? How do you, man? The music likes you not. You mistake, the musician likes me not. Why, my pretty youth? He plays false, father. Uh, well, how? Out of tune on the strings? Not so, but yet so false that he aggrieves my very heartstrings. You have a quick ear. I, I would I were deaf. It makes me have a slow heart. I perceive you delight not in music. Not a whit when it jars so. Oh, hark! What fine changes in the music. Aye, that changes the spite. Oh, you would have them always play but one thing. I would always have one play but one thing. But host, uh, doth this Sir Proteus that we talk on often resort unto this gentlewoman? I tell you what Lance's man told me. He loved her out of all nick. Where is Lance? Gone to seek his dog, which tomorrow, by his master's command, they must carry for a present to his lady. Peace. Stand aside. The company parts. Sir Cheerio, fear not you. I will so plead that you shall say my cunning drift excels. Where meet we? At St. Gregory's Well. Farewell. Madam, good even to your ladyship. I thank you for your music, gentlemen. Who is that that spake? One, lady, if you knew his pure heart's truth, you would quickly learn to know him by his voice. Sir Proteus, as I take it. Sir Proteus, gentle lady, and your servant. What's your will? That I may compass yours. You have your wish. My will is even this, that presently you hie you home to bed, thou subtle, perjured, false, disloyal man. Thinks thou I am so shallow, so conceitless to be seduced by thy flattery that has deceived so many with thy vows? Return, return and make thy love amends. For me by this pale queen of night, I swear I am so far from granting thy request that I despise thee for thy wrongful suit and by and by intend to chide myself even for this time I spend in talking to thee. I grant sweet love that I did love a lady, but she is dead. Twere false, if I should speak it, for I am sure she is not buried. Say that she be, yet Valentine, thy friend, survives, to whom thyself art witness I am betrothed, and art thou not ashamed to wrong him with thy important importunacy? I likewise hear that Valentine is dead. And, suppose, and so suppose am I, for in his grave assure thyself my love is buried. Sweet lady, let me rake it from the earth. Go to thy lady's grave and call hers thence, or at the least in her sepulchre thine. He heard not that. Madam, if your heart be so obdurate, vouchsafe me yet your picture for my love. 
the picture that is hanging in your chamber. To that I'll speak. To that I'll sigh and weep. For For since the substance of your perfect self is else devoted, I am but a shadow. And to your shadow will I make true love. If t'were a substance, you would sure deceive it and make it but a shadow, as I am. I am very loath to be your idol, sir. But since your falsehood shall become you well to worship shadows and adore false shapes, send to me in the morning and I'll send it. And so good rest. As wretches have overnight that wait for execution in the morn. Host, will you go? By my halidom, I was fast asleep. Pray you, where lies Sir Proteus? Uh, marry at, at my house. Trust me, I think tis almost day. Not so, but it hath been the longest night that e'er I watched, and the most heaviest. Oh, poor Julia. Poor Julia. I feel so bad for her. I know, right? I mean, tell tell me about this scene and, and Julia. Said. Well, I mean, I think she's at the point she's finally made it there, right? And concocted this whole plan to dress up as a boy, um, you know, because Shakespeare loves a pants play. And <laughs> then the first time she sees him, he's singing about another woman and he's like orchestrated this whole thing. I mean, that's, if yeah. that's not a slap in the face, I don't know what is, you know? But I, it all, at the same time, yeah. like, most people would just leave at that point or, you know, get, get upset or confront him or whatever. But I think she's so consumed by her love with uh, love for him that she doesn't, you know, I think she still wants to see him. And we'll, yeah. And we'll hear when she, you know, becomes someone who he hires to do, uh, to essentially be Lance mm-hmm. <laughs> and run messages um, but after Lance does not do that in a way that he <laughs> approves of, he sort of is like, oh, this like very good looking. <laughs> you know, well, you mean like, like all of this, really like the prototype for Twelfth Night? Creepy. <laughs> yeah, there's all exactly right. I mean, we've talked so much about like seeing these seeds planted that are going to be more deep. I would I would argue no offense to this play, but just like a little bit more deeply explored in later plays. Um, yeah, absolutely. There is that thread of, of, of Twelfth Night. I mean, there's even the, the names Antonio and Sebastian, which are a duo that appear in so many plays. I'm, as you can probably tell, I'm working on the Taming of the Shrew script, which will be the next project that we're doing. And, uh, Petru- I, I believe it's Petruchio's father is named Antonio too. So it's like he's got it. And Viola's <laughs> twin brother in Twelfth Night is Sebastian. Is Sebastian, right? It's like there's so and and Antonio is the wonderful. Uh, I I played Antonio in Twelfth Night. It's a really fun part. It's a really great. And part. Antonio um, is the uh, wicked brother in the Tempest as well. Absolutely. And is the merchant in the Merchant of Venice. Yeah, Miles. <laughs> and, now, and now that I remember the Tempest, uh, Anton- the, the Antonio in that play has a brother named Sebastian as well. That's right. Yeah, the Sebastian is the is Alonzo's brother, I think. The king's oh, brother. Oh, that's, oh, that's right. Antonio yeah, yeah. Are the... But but yeah, the names, I mean, there's there's just so many things that Shakespeare's going to use over and over again. And obviously, like, this is the first 
time he's going to use the woman disguised as a boy and all of the complicated, interesting gender things that happen when that happens. But yeah, poor Julia to sir. I, I think you're right that I think the text to me indicates that Proteus is the one singing. Yeah. Right. The musician likes me not, right? Yeah, I think I think um, that makes the most sense. But we also heard in Act Three that Cheerio had composed a sonnet that would be appropriate for this. So it's 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 possible in my mind that Cheerio wrote and there's musicians and Proteus is the one singing it, but it's um it's interesting. Um I am so struck by how strong Sylvia is too. I would love Ellen to bring you into this conversation because that line of hers, you have your wish, you are the worst essentially. Yeah. And you are so disloyal is such an extraordinary speech. It's epic. It's the first time I was reading that actually. And I was really hoping that she was going there with that. So yeah. as I was like reading it along, I was like, oh, fuck yeah, she's going there. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, she's so loyal, isn't she? And um, apologize, you can hear my cat, if you can hear my cat in the background. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a delight, absolutely a delight to read. Um, she's, I mean, what, what was the last, when was the last time we saw Sylvia? The last time we saw her was when it was that in act, yeah, in act two, when it was the, the moment between her and Valentine and Cheerio. And yeah. she was sort of, and that's when she met Proteus and then uh -huh. she left us and we haven't seen her since. I think it's really amazing yeah. that she's able to like pinpoint people. So like with deadly accuracy, like in like the short scenes that she has with people, she seems to be like very perceptive and, um, really appreciate her. I've been watching a lot of The Nanny recently. So in my head, I was hearing Fran Drescher say these, say these words, because uh, it's just something that I feel like every woman wants to be able to assert herself in that, in that, with that kind of strength in the, in the face of like, you know, which like, you know, it just goes so energetically, it's so opposite to what was being set up in the scene. So I'm really proud of her personally. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's wonderful that she is, you know, she's talked about as unlike a lot of the other sort of virgin on a pedestal character archetypes from some of these other um, early comedies, she's different. And they also talk about her as being sacred and holy, not just pure, but like on a godly level. So you kind of expect her to be like, ah, you know, and she isn't at all. She's like yeah. an incredibly grounded young woman. Yeah. She's got a totally. very straight head on her shoulders. It's like always such a bummer in Shakespeare though, when women have to like fend off men all the time or like talk about how much they love them all the time, you know, but this was at least a satisfying. Yeah. I'm kind of confused by why she lets, why she like relents and gives him her, the permission to get, give him her picture at the end. I agree. So I wonder what happens. I'm always like trying to visualize how these scenes are staged. And I'm kind of curious what your thoughts were on why she relents. I think that's a really 
great question. I have wondered, and we're going to get more about this portrait because Julia is going to come to collect it at the end of the act. And I have wondered if this is, as we're going to see in the next scene, she's making, Sylvia is making a plan to escape. And I do wonder if this is a tactic to distract Proteus mm -hmm. and to give him something that won't cost her anything right which is this portrait that maybe she doesn't even like mm. and it's a way of him going away so that as we see in the morning someone else is going to come to her balcony who she needs to talk to and i think if she didn't give the only way i can make sense of it in my mind is that if she didn't give him anything he would stay there all night right she doesn't he would want him to be there right in the morning mm. yeah uh sam um because I was just struck the first time hearing it, since I haven't ever heard the Sylvia speech out loud, just how contemporary it sounds. Like just how utterly contemporary it sounds. And when you get to that, I am so, it's there's something about that so that's there that just feels, and, and it's really, I, I just find it really interesting that of everything in the play and in a lot of Shakespeare, you, you know, and I don't know anymore if it's because I've just been so ensconced in it that I can pick it up easier or, or what have you, but this just feels incredibly clear in a way that a lot of Shakespeare isn't. And, and I think it's really interesting that it's, you know, his first play and also in the mouth of a woman where it's just completely like everything is just cut out and like she almost hates him so much that there's like no time for floweriness. There's no time to come up with like the perfect where it's almost like there's almost like a break of the artifice of the play itself um, in order for this character to tell Proteus how much she doesn't like him. And, and, and for the, the picture thing, um, the way that I read it is actually as a burn. Like it's like actually kind of like a really sick burn when you like go through it line by line mm. because it's, but since your falsehood shall become you well, since you wear your falsehood so well, I'm going to give you a false representation of myself. Uh, I think it's Hamlet where they call pictures counterfeits. Mm -hmm. um, like there's something about the counterfeit of my father's face and, and all that stuff. So it's like, here's a, you're a counterfeit person the only part of me that you'll ever get is counterfeit. Take a picture um, and to last I, longer, basically. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Take a picture to last longer. So I, I do kind of think um, it's, I don't think it's a, I think that if she wants Proteus out of her room, she can have Proteus out of her room at any given time. Like she is the Duke's daughter. Um, so I really do think that, at least in my interpretation of that line, it's, it's just like a really Byzantine to our ears for her. But I agree. Just, I think yeah. it also sounds a bit flirtatious at the same time, which, as you know, it, which which is kind of why I was a little, a little bit curious as to what I thought, you know, how this would how how you stage it. Um, Can I introduce? I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. The only the last thought I had was because I know that in the end of this play, once Syl Sylvia just stops talking pretty abruptly, and it's kind of a weird point of contention, right? So I was just kind of struck by this line in her monologue. If you'll indulge me. Mm. And by and by to intent, I intend to chide myself even for the time I spend talking to thee, which kind of like mm. to me is kind of a character kind of insight into how she thinks of herself and um, 
maybe I'm giving Shakespeare too much credit for writing that line and like <laughs> indicating her character, but maybe I think as an actor, you could use that line as sort of a justification for why you choose not to speak when people around you are wondering what that you should have something to say. I just thought that was an interesting kind of character clue. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just in terms of staging, that it's pretty clear that they are serenading her from the ground and that she would be up in the balcony because it says enter Sylvia above and she's going to enter above in the next scene. So that, that, that was my thinking that she's up in that very high tower. Um, there she is, the maiden in the tower with some really great sassy comebacks. Literally on a pedestal. Yeah, like if you literally. Think about it. Yeah. Is the song good or is it like in Much Ado where... <laughs> It's like actually really bad. And he's just mocking them by saying, thanks guys. That was a really lovely song. But Julia does say, I mean, we, we don't, you wouldn't have to follow this in production, in production, but Julia does say that the song is good, right? That's like true. the song is good. Or in the host, I guess also says that. Oh yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. Tense the 12th night reference. Right, right, right. <laughs> Before we move, because I think that uh, Ellen said something really interesting about like the character choices on the choosing not to talk and, 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 and finding little bits like that in the text. I would like to think that Shakespeare might have put that in there purposefully because if you're playing Iago to go to a separate play, Iago's last line of the play is, I'm never going to tell anybody why I did what I did. And I think that whenever I see Iago or, or hear about Iago that doesn't work for me, it's when the character or when the actor has done what actors are told to do, which is to make a choice. Wherein I think that Iago becomes a much scarier character when the actor themselves doesn't make the clear decision of which of the one million reasons he gives that he hates Othello in that play to actually choose one. And so that last line of the play is justified with him turning to the audience be like, I'm never gonna tell you. And that's like a direct note that Shakespeare giving. So I can see there being a really interesting note there buried in the text that the actor would have recognized because you only see your own lines in, in original production practices where you're like, okay, cool. When I don't say anything, it's because my voice is a gift. And I think that that's a really cool thing to pick up because miss that line completely in your speech. And I thought that was a yeah. really cool point to bring up. Yes, love Absolutely. That. And Sam, I, it's interesting that you bring up Othello in a totally different vein, um, but yet I see so much of Desdemona and Sylvia. And in this, you know, I don't care what my father says, I'm choosing the person that I'm choosing. It is mm. a very deliberate choice and I'm gonna do what I wanna do, They're, right? There's this whole free will concept. There are these concepts of romantic love as opposed to courtly love. There's so much I think that is happening with Sylvia. And I agree with your comment earlier that this is a very, it feels like a very modern speech. Yeah. Like it feels like it, that she gives here um, with these concepts of, of free will and choice and um, an expectation of others that you don't always ascribe to women from Shakespeare's time. Yeah, and I think there's so many monosyllabic words in that speech makes it feel very contemporary. Like you were pointing out, Sam, that I am so far from, right? I'm so far from, like you could totally hear someone saying something equivalent to that. Um, and I also, I think it's interesting, Mitch, I, I wanted to bring you in here 
because I'm I'm very I'm very puzzled by Proteus in this scene. Oh, interesting. Because uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Please, As- please just tell me about like the just the experience of, yeah. of going through this scene as Proteus and yeah. sort of what's going on for him. I'm I'm actually um, growing in my appreciation of like the not the way this role is written. I think he uh, he's quite problematic, but but I think it's some actually pretty pretty decent writing by Shakespeare in that mm. I think that I think that the the descent the arc of this character actually is like there throughout in the text and it's very helpful that we get so much text from him um yeah. in this scene I think there's like a another shift in his language um and it's a shift towards more desperation and more violence and it's potentially subtle, but I mean, I, I, I'm going to cite a few things here. I, like, this is not the first time he and Sylvia have spoken. And I really liked what Ellen was saying about her being um, like really precisely insightful, right? Into mm-hmm. into people. It seems like he's run into, he he's had this plan. He's going to go. And, and the moment when he has to woo her, he's run into a buzzsaw because she <laughs> just like sees exactly what he is and has called him out before and calls him out again here. And this opening soliloquy, like he he says that she, like he calls his gifts worthless. She's too fair, too true, too holy to be corrupted with my worthless gifts. Yeah. Right. She twits me with my falsehood to my friend. Um, she bids me think I've been forsworn and breaking faith with Julia. And then the things she calls him, um, when she's actually speaking, are the things he is. Subtle, perjured, false, disloyal. Those are the things he's been, right? And a, a flatterer, right? Um, so I, I think that he he's hit this and then his language becomes perhaps subtly like more desperate and more violent. So he says, yeah. she says, what is your will? And he says that I may compass yours. Yeah. What a like weird oh. and... So gross creepy. thing to say right so creepy well and, and Tyrio uses the word creep too have you crept here right, right. And he's like yes i'm creeping and it's like yeah. oh god come on <laughs> yeah yeah it's like ugh. um <laughs> and the last time we saw the last time we saw her interact with him which is i guess the last time we saw her at all is he was doing this like courtly language thing with her right and he was like vowing that he would be her servant and things like this but in a like you know in a in a more uh gracious way and then he he claims that valentine is dead he yeah he, he claims that julia is dead which she sort of is to him i guess he claims that valentine is dead and then when sylvia says that she consider her dead too let me rake her from the earth yeah. Right. And, yeah. and then the picture thing, it's all very, he's getting close to violence, I think. Yes. Well, it's, it's predatory. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. That's the word. That's yeah. The word. I got you. I got you. Yeah. It's, <laughs> no, it's just, it you. is. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all, it's all predatory. It's all manipulating people to fit in to his ideals of what love and uh, expression of love is. Yeah. In, a, in a really weird yeah gross way i i think that is so important that the language is changing right and as the language and the images are changing like the character's changing 
at first it was all like, oh, tears and sighs. And now like, it's like, I'm going to dig in the earth for you. I'm going to make true love to your picture. Like there is, there is a seriously degraded kind of language around Sylvia. And he's, it's like, he's no longer seeing her as a as well if he ever did see her as a person like she's becoming more and more of an object in fact he's willing to reduce her to a picture right so it's it's yeah. it's an interesting degradation of this beautiful holy idea of her at the beginning down to like a corpse down to yeah. a picture like oh and then also of julia <laughs> and of valentine and of himself like within yeah. that right like everything's becoming degraded yeah it's really, I mean, it's very dark. Sam, go ahead. <laughs> in, in, in sort of the theme that we've been talking about in each one of these, this is sort of this scene where we finally have nice guy go incel, right? In all the themes that we're talking about. This is where, this is where the frustrated but deeply romantic and, and deeply misogynistic young man whose society has told that romance and love is supposed to work one way and 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 he knows that he's done something bad to his friends but he, he had justifications for it like valentine was going to besmirch you know her honor by running away with her and everything that he was doing was to protect this pure wonderful noble creature and this is that turn right this is where suddenly as as we've been discussing with the language change where it's suddenly like yeah, you know what? Well, if I can't, like, I did everything right and I still don't, and, and, and I think that, like, in that incel narrative, as we're watching somebody become radicalized in that particular way, like, here's another inflection point. And, and also just notice, like, what's the version of this story where Valentine's not in love? Like, he has no friends right now that he's talking to, right? He's, like, completely... Like that's the other thing that we haven't really been tracking, but Proteus's isolation from any other character also increases as the play goes up. Like the more charitable reading of that character, if he deserves one, is is that he's just it's 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 he's going mad and isolated, and there's nobody for him to ping pong things. There's nobody to be like, dude, or nobody of his own station to be like, yo, chill. Like, like nothing that you're doing here is appropriate, but he. Valentine tells him his plans. Other people are telling people their plans. He's telling nobody about his plans. And, and I do think that that is a distinction that should be teased out a little bit um, in a bigger production of that, of that growing sense of isolation, much like young men on the internet. <laughs> I love it. I really like, I really want to... <laughs> Sam's just like disappeared from his screen. <laughs> um, but I, I actually really, I really do like this. I think if I was staging this, I would constantly isolate Proteus on stage more and more as the play went on that like nobody comes near him. Um, and so then when we have that moment at the end, it is such a break in the way he has been physically relating to everyone I think it would be even even more shocking. And that's what I like, making my audience super upset. Um, go ahead, Mitch. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> Sam, you were you were talking about, I, I, I'm probably gonna misquote you here, but you were talking about how um, Proteus sort of makes it make sense 
what he's doing for him. And I'm struck by how it's sort of because he's alone that he's able to do that. It's these soliloquies that become very, very tortured, very complicated thoughts because because it's just not right. And and again, I, I'm very struck. He he at some point has to actually come into contact with like a person who has her shit together. And this speech, part of why it jumps off the page, I think it's like very clear, very simple, very regular iambic pentameter mm-hmm. compared to Proteus's soliloquies. And it just, it just shatters. Proteus's shit just, just shatters. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, because it's just it's just a dose of reality. Yeah, it's like get get out of this like little love mind castle that you're in, bro, and just like go away. I also, yeah, I want to bring Miles. I want to bring you into the conversation because I'm just particularly fond of the host, and I love the fact that like after all this drama, <laughs> the host is like oh shit I fell asleep this was so boring like it's such a wonderful undercut of the entire (laughs) drama of the scene it's so good it's like oh shit I was waiting for the clouds to come back (laughs) yeah Miles go ahead (laughs) yeah I wasn't thinking of Samwise Gamgee I was just kind of thinking of the uh going off the chat i was just i was just kind of like thinking of like the you know uh kind of down down to earth kind of a english kind of person that um you know most of shakes the majority of shakespeare's audience would have been back in the day and i kind of have to like uh and kind of you know thinking along that angle i kind of have to wonder if there's like and I'm, I'm sure I'm sure somebody has like made some kind of Marxist commentary, like trying to look at this from like a class angle, you know, where like the nobles are all swanning about with these uh, overblown notions of uh, love and uh, in their heads, and uh, the the common folk are just kind of down there, like, oh, um, isn't my dog the worst? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, as we as we saw, Miles, to bring up to just accentuate that point we saw the great parody of lance talking about the reasons that he loves which are like infinitely better than these like metaphysical like i don't know why i love her but i do (laughs) Lance is like she brews good ale she knows how to milk she keeps her hands clean (laughs) yeah she's great (laughs) yeah i mean i mean i guess you could uh, i mean i guess you could call it populist rather than marxist since you know marx hadn't been born yet but uh i mean i guess the guess the principle is kind of the uh, same just kind of like uh like the nobility you're like the nobility are there and i'm sure they have some purpose but they, they can be real silly sometimes can't they oh my gosh yes and so much to do with with property right like a exactly. lot of this is to do with with dowries and, and properties yeah. and having just edited the end of act two of taming of the shrew like we go through this actually kind of funny interaction between kate and petruchio and then it comes to okay so who's bianca gonna marry and it everyone launches into quite literally a catalog of what they own Mm. how that's going to be exchanged and written over to Bianca and it's like wait I thought we were asking the women if they if they wanted to (laughs) at least that's what the dad did with Katerina but not with Bianca it's like nope you have more money it's to you you know yeah an interesting thing yeah yeah, because marriage, mostly marriage back in the, that time, was mo- it was mostly a business transaction. 
as a way of strengthening familial bonds and giving their finances more secure. And, and what an amazing contrast to Lance's list yes. of virtues, exactly. right? Of, of his milkmaid. Uh, Absolutely. Fantastic in that way to mm. contrast the two concepts of a list of one's accounts versus a list of one's qualities. Yes. Um, Ellen, go ahead, my dear. Oh, I was just getting stuck. I wondered if you could, um, on page 75, Julia has that aside. He heard not that. And I was just like going back over that dialogue between Proteus and Sylvia. And I was wondering uh, what kind of moment that was. Like, Sam, how were you internalizing that moment? Was that like, he heard not that, meaning he heard not what Sylvia said about? Yeah, I think. Like trying to imagine like. I mean, yeah, that's kind of how I, like. I, I kind of interpret it as, oh, well, that didn't get through to him is like, you know, like he's mm-hmm. saying like, it's kind of like we have a sister, sister moment or you, you know, we're kind of, we kind of have like a little, I'm just kind of, I'm yeah. interested in that dynamic of what's going on there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think it's just not, I, I think, oh, well, let me look at it again. Well, you're telling, yeah, you're telling him to go and him. see me and yeah. I'm just, I think it's like, yeah, well, that's, that's not landing with him or that's not something that he's going to do. You know, that's. Proteus says, let me rake it from the earth. It meaning like her love. Yeah. She talks about, she says, my love is buried. He says, let me make it, get it back from the earth. And then she says, no, go get your lady's love or at the least bury your love in hers. Mm -hmm. Julia's like, no, he didn't hear that. Yeah. I'm just like wondering like what kind of moment that was for Julia. Um, anyway, sorry. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how I may, you know, it wasn't a very good explanation about, of it on my part, but it just, it seems that it seemed kind of sassy. It was like, I think it's a little sassy. No, I think, I think it is a little sassy. I think that's exactly what it is because I think Julia's like, yeah, he doesn't give, he doesn't care about that. He doesn't give a shit about that. I didn't realize Um, that the hand stayed up there the whole time. Sorry. (laughs) Also on a superficial level, a more superficial level, um, that's like if I were directing this, um, Proteus does not respond to what Sylvia just said there right. for like the first time in the scene. So I, I think Julia is making the other point that that Sam just said. I also think that if I were directing it, I would have Proteus doing something, <laughs> rending his hair or something, so that he's like not actually listening to her say that because then he comes with this picture idea. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, because yeah, I'm sure Proteus is also like really proud of himself for his like cute little quote unquote cute little response of like, oh, well, if you're burying your love, then I'll go dig it out and keep it for myself. Ha ha ha. Look at me. I'm so flirty. And Sylvia's like, no, like, cause, yeah, I mean, at least I could see that being a, a thing. Yeah, maybe. Well, and there is there is, I, I, I love the fact that Sylvia, as we've talked about that speech of hers, like you are subtle, you're perjured, you're false. She's able to really tell the truth. Let's turn to the next scene because then we actually get to hear her plan and we meet Sir Eglamore. Is this the same Sir Eglamore that Julia was talking about? Gotta be, right? I wanted to be and I want him to rescue Julia and take her away. Why? And there are so many Eglamores though. Right. <laughs> oh, the Eglamores, they're everywhere. But yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so let's go through this sweet little scene. 
And we hear once again, I would like to point out that the women are the one with the plans, right? They're the ones with the plans. So whenever you're ready, my dears. This is the hour that Madam Sylvia entreated me to call and know her mind. There's some great matters she'd employ me in. Madam, Madam. Who calls? Your servant and your friend, one that attends your ladyship's command. Sir Eglamore, a thousand times good morrow. As many worthy lady to yourself. According to your ladyship's impose, I am thus early come to know what service it is your pleasure to command me in. Oh, Eglamore, thou art a gentleman. Think not I flatter, for I swear I do not. Valiant, wise, remorseful, well accomplished. Thou art not ignorant what dear goodwill I bear unto the banished Valentine nor how my father would enforce me marry vain Turio, whom my very soul abhors. Thyself hast loved, and I, I've heard thee say, no grief did ever come so near thy heart as when thy lady and thy true love died, upon whose grave thou vowedst pure chastity. Sir Eglamore, I would to Valentine, to Mantua, where I hear he makes abode, and for the ways are dangerous to pass, I do desire thy worthy company, upon whose faith and honor I repose. Urge not my father's anger, Eglamore, but think upon my grief, a lady's grief, and on the justice of my flying hence to keep me from a most unholy match, which heaven and fortune still rewards with plagues. I do desire thee, even from a heart as full of sorrows as the sea of sands, to bear me company and go with me, if not to hide what I have said to thee, that I may venture to depart alone. Madam, I pity much your grievances, which since I know they virtuously are placed, I give consent to go along with you, wrecking as little what betideth me, as much I wish all good be fortune you. When will you go? This evening coming. Where shall I meet you? At Friar Patrick's cell, where I intend holy confession. I will not fail your ladyship. Good morrow, gentle lady. Good morrow, kind Sir Eglamore. Oh, we have a male ally. Hooray! <laughs> so delicate um, asked. <laughs> yes, Mitch, as you say for now. <laughs> um, Eglamore here meaning uh, always in love or constant in love, right? Which is very sweet. Yeah, tell me about this scene, you two. This is a very... I wonder like how they know each other and what their their friendship is, right? Because that word friend, which we've heard yeah. tossed around and dragged through the dirt a couple times in this play already, makes an appearance here, which is interesting. Yeah, what's the what's Eglamore's rank? Is there a rank that we know of to him? To her? I am guessing they are a gentleman. The same as Valentine and Proteus, because they are all addressed as sir. I think he serves her father though mm -hmm. and so I think he has a bit of a paternal like care for her and loyalty to her as well as to her father but in this instance he's sort of deferring to her. Apparently so, also this is a figure from medieval romance right it's the it's the knight that's in love. Um, so and, and as we heard, I mean, I'm really thinking about 
Valentine and Proteus as potentially also as knights, because especially in act one, when Antonio, uh, Proteus's father, or maybe it's Pantino, I can't remember, was talking about, oh yeah, he needs to go and fight jousts and tournaments and blah, 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 and become a gentleman and, you know, all of that thing. And it's interesting how many times they're used with, their names are combined with sir. So I wonder the significance of that. Yeah, Sam. There's also some puns earlier that I didn't point out, but when Proteus is talking to the Duke, um, this knight will, and you could read that as the knight that he is talking. It can both be tonight and uh, Valentine if you are coding them as knights and not just mm -hmm. as gentlemen. But I, I think that they would be. I mean, I think that if there was a war, all of these men would be in full armor and on horses. Like, mm -hmm. So I, I think that, that that scans, but I, I like Egomor. I think, I think that he's a, I think that he's just like a good knight. And I think that it's really kind of interesting that he has a, if the name like here's actually like the knight in love coming to do like, here's actually good courtly romance coming in to show everybody how it's done in this play because these poor boys only read books slash surf the internet. <laughs> but it's, in, it's interesting that Sylvia clearly knows him, knows his story, right? And uses that to get him to be attuned to her desires and to, to come with her, um, you know, as when thy lady and thy true love died upon whose grave thou vowedst pure chastity. So I think she's thinking one, like, you know what true love is. And two, maybe you're not a threat because you vowed yeah. chastity. So maybe you're okay to bring along. Um, and that, you know, she sort of uses that as a way to pull at his heartstrings a little bit and be like, you know what this is all about, man. You felt this, like, I gotta go after my true love. Like, come help me out, or at least don't tell on me. Yeah. Yeah, she really uses like really emotive, really emotional appeals. And um, it sounds like this is happening early in the morning. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's like this like kind of freshness and rawness that I think is kind of really beautiful to see. But Sylvia comes across as like, uh, yeah, she's really appealing to like the ethos of the situation. She's like, look, mm. heaven abhors this. You have to understand it from my perspective. I know you do. And she's, you know, really appeasing to his like better angels, I think, to help her. Um, it's a very like Juliet, Friar Lawrence kind of conversation feels like. And Friar Lawrence does make an appearance in act five, which I'm no like, way. what the actual <laughs> fuck? <laughs> um <laughs> But uh, and that like gorgeous, <laughs> those gorgeous s that gorgeous assonance too, and full of sorrows is the sea. Like, good yes. lord, you know some, some real emotion that's coming out there. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, I was just, I was just gonna ask Ellen. Do you do you think this is the most we've like genuinely seen Sylvia? I, I thought that as you were reading it, I was like, she's been dealing with these other men this whole time definitely it feels like the stopper has been unplugged a little bit and it's mm. unclear to me right now if it's a manipulation or if it's an act or it's if it's a genuine appeal and it's mm. i mean i'm gonna take it at face value as a genuine appeal at the at least at this read through it just the language falls so easily out the way that the, this monologue is written just like looking mm. at the last word of every line was like the the the, the forward momentum of it is so emotional and like 
like set like sacred almost it's like she's just getting straight to the the core of the appeal so yeah I think she's really genuine it sounds like she's scared yeah well as we heard she's from really Julia. desperate and like that end you know they have like those shared lines at the end of the scene and she's she just jumps right in and says I need to leave tonight yeah. I'm, you know it just she, she genuinely seems like there's urgent you know clear like urgency Absolutely. And as we learned from Julia, and as is constantly told to us in Shakespeare, it is extremely dangerous for women to travel alone. Extremely dangerous. So this is a way of her, um, especially if they're unmarried, right? That's the word. You don't want to be an unmarried woman traveling by yourself. It's like completely undoable here. So this is this is safety, right? This is safety, which she would have if she was married, but she's not. So she's in this dangerous uh, moment. Yeah, Mitch. This is a much less important comment, but I just want to rescind my previous way too fast assertion that this has to be the same Eglamore that Julia was talking about, because if it is, we got problems, right? Julia. I know, I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, she was talking about suitors and it's like a really important plot point. Mm-hmm. that Eglamore is devoted to his dead love. So either it's a different person with the same name or Eglamore is actually a fraud and runs away at the first sign of danger. Spoiler alert. <gasps> Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't feel intentional though. It feels like sloppy writing to me. I don't know. Like <laughs> Sam Blend, did you have the same? I don't know. Oh yeah. What's sloppy writing in, in this play? No. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse to believe it. No, I def I definitely had the same thought as soon as as soon as um, Ellen said the line about um, how uh, he vowed pure chastity. I was like, ah, damn it. Well, I, we were wrong. There goes but that's that. okay. There goes there goes that idea. Um, Sam, yeah. Uh, I also just wanted to point out the one man who is not mentioned throughout the entirety of this scene because. I've just been scanning it again, and I'm pretty sure the name doesn't come up, but we talk about the Duke. Uh, we talk about uh, Churio. We talk about uh, uh, Valentine. Proteus's name does not show up <laughs> anywhere in this scene. And, Sorry, I also, <laughs> and I also think that it's such, like, right, because the play is called Two Gentlemen of Verona, we can't help but think that everything in this play is about one of like like especially when we're sitting with Proteus and I always think that it's just really interesting when like you would think that there might be a line in here and like Proteus won't leave me the fuck alone but that doesn't even come into it once Mm -hmm. like Sylvia is in her own play and in Sylvia's play Proteus isn't even kind of a character (laughs) and I think that that's really funny and 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 also, you know, we were just talking about sloppy writing, but this is actually really good writing on like the opposite way, because, you know, why would this little nice boy incel even be on her radar besides the fact that she fucked over the love of her life? And he does not even worth a mention here. And so I think that there is really something interesting about this thing where you have Proteus just piss her off in the last scene doesn't even get a mention yeah maybe she's trying to do that on purpose like paint a picture of herself 
to Eglamore as like somebody that really needs help and protection. And if she talks about the Proteus thing, it's like, and there's that fucking guy, like, I got it. Yeah. So maybe yeah. she's like <laughs> trying to pot, like posture herself as helpless and defenseless. That is also really cool, Ellen, because I think that is useful for the final scene, right? That you actually don't feel threatened by him until that moment. Right? Yeah, I wonder, because you, like, you can imagine an alternate world in which actually the thing to say to Eglamore maybe is like, and this man won't leave me alone. And like, mm-hmm. somebody must do something about it, right? As opposed to like, help me, let, help me deceive my father. Right for the sake of true love. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'm wondering also though if she if she were to have said that, I don't know that it would have gotten a response out of him. Yeah, he might have you know killed him I mean? instead of helping her run away. That's true. Well, <laughs> I like maybe not even though. Like I think even just being um, like, oh well, whatever. It's just some some boy that likes you, you right. know. Because I think there's a lot of pushing that off, you know, society in society of like, oh well, just you know, just ignore him. He just is doing that because he likes you. Like he's just, you (laughs) know, exactly. (laughs) Which totally feeds into the end of the play as well. You know, like it's, there are a lot of excuses made for men that act in predatory ways, which kind of speaks to a point that Gilroy was saying earlier too. So I think I'm wondering like if it's a conscious choice because she doesn't want to put any energy towards that or because she doesn't think it'll make a difference Mm. i don't know maybe but i mean how 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 much time do we have to talk about the men (laughs) in our life that annoy us you know to everybody we meet like we we wouldn't stop talking that's that's like five plays it's like do you want me to do you want me to do do it alphabetically by first or last name right and shakespeare's got some male protagonists to write he doesn't have time for that He's got some serious gentlemen we need to be attending to. Rough. There is a there was actually like a great critique of this that said two gentlemen question mark of Verona. <laughs> like, are they though? <laughs> uh, which I think is is like a legitimate talking point, you know. Um, and we'll get into the 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 very, very complicated dynamic of the final scene in the final scene. Um for now, I would like to return to the to the world of dogs stealing food and peeing on people's legs because that is just like a really nice, it's a really nice place to go after all <laughs> that we've just had. So Izzy, will you take it away? And let's just go through your huge monstrous speech here. And then we'll we'll just talk about it a little bit and then we'll go into the rest of the scene. I would love to. <laughs> When a man's servant shall play the cur with him, look you, it goes hard. One that I brought up of a puppy, one that I saved from drowning when three or four of his blind brothers and sisters went to it. I have taught him, even as one should say precisely, thus I would teach a dog. I was sent to deliver him as a present to Mistress Sylvia from my master, and I came no sooner into the dining chamber but he steps me to her trencher and steals her capon's leg. Oh, tis a foul thing when a Kirk cannot keep himself in all companies. I would have, as one should say, one that takes upon him to be a dog indeed, to be, as it were, a dog at all things. 
If I had not more wit than he, to take a fault upon me than he did, I think verily he would have been hanged for it. Sure as I live, he had suffered for it. You shall judge. He thrusts me himself into the company of three or four gentlemen-like dogs under the Duke's table. He had not been there, bless the mark, a pissing while, but all the chamber smelt him. Out with the dog, says one. What cur is that, says another. Whip him out, says the third. Hang him up, says the Duke. I, having been acquainted with the smell before, knew it was crab. And goes me to the fellow that whips the dogs. Friend, quoth I. You mean to whip the dog? I married, do I, quoth he. You do him the more wrong, quoth I. Twas I that did the thing you wot of. He makes me no more ado, but whips me out of the chamber. How many masters would do this for their servant? Nay, I'll be sworn. I have sat in the stocks for puddings he hath stolen, otherwise he had been executed. I have stood on the pillory for geese he hath killed, otherwise he had suffered for it. Thou thinks not of this now. Nay, I remember the trick you served me when I took my leave from Madame Sylvia. Did not I bid thee still mark me and do as I do? When didst thou see me heave up my leg and make water against the gentlewoman's farthingale? Didst thou ever see me do such a trick? Sebastian is thy name? I like thee well, and will employ thee in some service presently. In what you please, I'll do what I can. I hope thou wilt. How now, you whoreson peasant? Where have you been these two days loitering? Mary, sir, I carried Mistress Sylvia, the dog you bade me. And what says she to my little jewel? Mary, she says your dog was a cur, and tells you currish thanks is good enough for such a present. But she received my dog? Oh, no, indeed she did not. Here have I brought him back again. What? Didst thou offer her this from me? Aye, sir, the other squirrel was stolen from me by the hangman's boys. Aye, sir, the other squirrel was stolen from me by the hangman's boys in the marketplace. And then I offered her mine own, who is as dog as big as ten of yours, and therefore a gift the greater. Go, get thee hence and find my dog again, or ne'er return again into my sight. Away, I say. Stayst thou here to vex hmm. Stayst thou to vex me here? Ugh, a slave that still an end turns me to shame. Sebastian, I have entertained thee, partly that I have need of such a youth that can with some discretion do my business, for tis no trusting to yon foolish lout, but chiefly for thy face and thy behavior, which, if my augury deceive me not, witness good bringing up, fortune, and truth. Therefore, know thou, for this I entertain thee. Go presently, and take this ring with thee. Deliver it to Madame Sylvia. She loved me well, delivered it to me. It seems you loved not her to leave her token. She is dead, belike. Not so. I think she lives. Alas. Why dost thou cry alas? I cannot choose but pity her. Wherefore shouldst thou pity her? Because methinks that she loved you as well as you do love your lady Sylvia. 
She dreams on him that has forgot her love. You dote on her that cares not for your love. Tis pity love should be so contrary, and thinking on it makes me cry, alas. Well, give her that ring, and therewithal this letter. That's her chamber. Tell my lady I claim the promise for her heavenly picture. Your message done, hie home unto my chamber, where thou shalt find me sad and solitary. Let's just pause right there, because I wanna I wanna spend some time with the the second half of this scene with our two late lovely ladies. Um, Izzy, tell tell me about this. Uh... <laughs> The pissing, a pissing while, um, yeah. which I have entitled that little French scene. Um, yeah, pissing. I while. love the fact that Crab actually just like peed on Sylvia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Crab was just like, like it's just so, oh. and I love that someone believed that actually no, it was Lance. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, there's two. There's two moments where the dog urinated on something. There's one where he's under the table, right, and he pees, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, whip the dog!" And Lance is like, "It was me." <laughs> and then at the end of the speech, we get that moment where, remember the time when we said goodbye to Madame Sylvia. And I said, do what I do. And did you see me lift up my leg and pee on her skirt? Like, no. Right? So there's like, this, it's just amazing. And again, the dog can be perfectly well behaved. This is hilarious. The dog can be badly behaved. It's hilarious. The dog can like do absolutely nothing. It's hilarious. Like it really is maybe the best part of any for any character it's like the best comedy role the dog steals the show every time every 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 time um i also love the moment that you're like yeah i lost that squirrel <laughs> it's like i've got in my head i've got this like tiny little toy dog <laughs> that proteus wanted to give yeah. sylvia <laughs> but my dog's bigger so it's a better gift you know like i just love that logic Oh, anyway, tell me about Lance. <laughs> I think this is really revealing when we're talking about like what love, like what you'll do for love in this last, these last yes. few scenes of Proteus being like, well, I, I'll dig up your grave of your love. And then Lance <laughs> is like, I literally just got whipped because I pretended I was the one that peed just for you. <laughs> and like, that's apparently a theme because he's done this more than once. Um, because he's scared that the dog will get hurt and I think like if we're just like parodying everything else and putting this in like side by side it's just like yeah that is a like also horrendous don't do that but um, (laughs) like just don't whip people in general I guess but um, like that is so much more of a pure form of love than this like idea of something because all of these other people it's just like this idea of this woman that I'm in love with which is why it's so easy for Proteus to go from one to the other it's just like it's just an idea mm-hmm. whereas like with Lance you also get a little bit of a history even though it's very silly it's like I saved you when you were a puppy from drowning like we yeah. have a bond this isn't just yeah. like I thought you were cute and yeah. uh now I'm devoting my life to you like it's just something much more pure with it's way funnier as well, of course, but it's also like, oh, wow. Like, imagine if someone loved you like that, you know, yeah. it's like, one of those, like 
that Thank would be amazing. That is. I love that because it's also like, that is the reality of like what it is to truly love someone. Like it's a mother changing a diaper. Like <laughs> that is love. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's like messy and like gross. And like, that is love. Anyway, um, Sam and Amish. Yeah. I really like things throughout history where, because the past is so alien right? Like 50 years ago is so alien from now, not for the people that have lived through it, of course, but for us. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. But I'm always tickled when there's things that are so pure and the feelings are the same. I don't know if there's any dog owners uh, amongst you, but I know that I have taken my dog and I have looked at him and I've been like, I love you more than anything in the entire world. I would do anything for you but like, you're about to make me cry. And if you pee on anything else, I'm going to lose my mind. Why would you do this to me? And you don't speak English. And like, please, like we can't. And, and, and this is such, anybody who has owned a dog will listen to this speech and they'll be like, I know this feeling. And I can't believe that people in Elizabethan times felt the way about their dogs that I, and it's even more than that, that they, it, it was such a common parlance that it could be put into a play where other people would be like, I know about this. And it's just such a beautiful moment. Yeah, it's just, it's just a, this beautiful thing that, you know, you're suddenly like, I'm connected to people that lived this far back in the past because we love our dogs the same way. And that's, that's just like a beautiful, beautiful little thing that's in the middle of this play that makes me feel really connected to like humanity throughout history that like if this sentiment can be here in this play and I can feel the same way like it, it's just and so I just wanted to square that for two seconds because it's it just like really touches me yeah. um when things like this crop up so he has to chide the dog like I love how Lance addresses the dog at the end it is like Listen, dude, you know what I've done for you, right? Like, you can see me lift up my leg and piss on her. Like, you know, there, there's just this funny moment where he's like, of course I'd love you know anything for you. And like, you're driving me nuts. Like you just yeah. said at the beginning, Sam. It's kind of adorable. Uh, Mitch, go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad, Izzy, that you brought up the, like, the sacrifice and the, like, genuine like display of genuine love. Um, Cause that also jumped out at, at me as you were reading it. I just want to point out that we're actually on a nice little streak of people doing that. It's actually not just Lance, right? Like Julia's doing that right now. And she's about to, with this picture, um, Sylvia is about to run away from, right? Like her inheritance, presumably um, for Valentine. And I guess Eglamore to some extent, right? Is, is doing this for, for his dead love, right? Like he sees something in Sylvia that is like true, true love. So I, that feels, the fact that that's in this act starting to like accumulate a little bit feels significant to me structurally. And I'm not yeah. quite sure exactly how that works out, you know, by the end, but it, it feels like something is happening. Yes. Thank you, Mitch. I think that's super important. And it's also just in the context of your character. It's like, what is Proteus sacrificing? Do you know what I mean? Like at, at this yeah, point, nothing, right? I don't know what no. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Izzy. Um, just one other thing, kind of on a different note. 
that I wanted to point out is we've had in some soliloquies some like look yous, which are like feel very like a general address to the audience maybe. But we have that line, you shall judge in this speech, which is very much more like I have a relationship with the audience and we haven't kind of really heard that from any other character. Like I think Speed has a fun relationship with the audience, but it's never that direct. And I don't think it ever happens again, but it's just that line, you shall judge. It's like, I am telling this story to you so you yes. can understand my love because there's no one else here that I can express it to. So you guys better get it. And yeah. um, cause all the other scenes are like, I'm expressing my love to this or this, but they have someone to go back off of. And unless he's saying this to the dog, which a choice. Um, or God. Or oh God. God, yes. Um, as the agnostic Jew I am, it doesn't resonate. Um, but <laughs> but uh, just like this idea of like, I don't actually need a real witness for my love. Whereas like there, it's like, I'm, I'm singing a song in front of other people. So I'm showing you and everyone around that I love where this is just like, directly you person listening just just look at this look what I do for this dog which so it seems like a direct connection with the audience but also like it's just I think it's interesting and expressing your love to someone else but it's not the person you love and it's not for show it's you know what I mean like I, I find that kind of fascinating I also think it's interesting to contrast the relationship that Lance has built with the audience versus the relationship that Proteus has built with the audience, right? Because those are the two people that get the most on stage time alone, just line wise with the audience. And coming in third, how's this for a transition, is Julia, who's now going to get her third moment alone with the audience with her lovely speech here the OG ring speech. How many women would do such a message? Alas, poor Proteus, thou hast entertained a fox to be the shepherd of thy lambs. Alas, poor fool. Why do I pity him that with his very heart despiseth me? Because he loves her, he despiseth me. Because I love him, I must pity him. This ring I gave him when he parted from me to bind him to remember my goodwill. And now am I unhappy messenger to plead for that which I would not obtain, to carry that which I would have refused, to praise his faith which I would have dispraised. I am my master's true confirmed love, but cannot be true servant to my master unless I prove false traitor to myself. Yet will I woo for him, but yet so coldly as heaven knows it, I would not have him speed. Gentlewoman, good day. I pray you, be my mean to bring me where to speak with Madam Sylvia. What would you with her if that I be she? If you be she, I do entreat your patience to hear me speak the message I am sent on. From whom? From my master, Sir Proteus, madam. Sends you for a picture. Hi, madam. Ursula, bring my picture there. Go, give your master this. Tell him from me, one Julia, that his changing thoughts forget would better fit his chamber than his shadow. This shadow. Uh, uh, Madam, please peruse this letter. 
Oh, pardon me, madam. I have unadvised deliver you a paper that I should not. This is the letter to your ladyship. I pray thee, let me look on that again. It may not be. Uh, good madam, pardon me. There, hold. I will not look upon your master's lines. I know they are stuffed with protestations and full of newfound oaths, which he will break as easily as I do tear his paper. Madam, he sends your ladyship this ring. The more shame for him that he sends it me, for I have heard him say a thousand times his Julia gave it him at his departure. Though his false finger have profaned the ring, mine shall not do his Julia so much wrong. She thanks you. What sayest thou? Uh, I thank you, madam, that you tender her. Poor gentlewoman, my master wrongs her much. Dost thou know her? Almost as well as I do know myself. To think upon her woes, I do protest that I have wept a hundred several times. Like she thinks that Proteus hath forsook her. I think she doth, and that's her cause of sorrow. Is she not passing fair? She hath been fairer, madam, than she is. When she did think my master loved her well, she, in my judgment, was as fair as you. But since she did neglect her looking glass and threw her sun-expelling mask away, uh, the air hath starved the roses in her cheeks and pinched the lily tincture of her face, that now she is become as black as I. How tall was she? Uh, about my stature for a uh, Pentecost. When, when all our pageants of delight were played, our youth got me to play the woman's part, and I was trimmed in Madame Julia's gown, which served me as a fit by all men's judgments as if the garment had been made for me. Therefore, I know she is about my height. And at that time, I made her weep a good, for I did play a lamentable part. Uh, Madame, t'was Ariadne, passioning for Theseus's perjury and unjust flight which I so lively acted with my tears that my poor mistress moved therewithal, wept bitterly. And would I might be dead if I in thought felt not her very sorrow. She is beholden to thee, gentle youth. Alas, poor lady, desolate and left. I weep myself to think upon thy words. Here, youth, there is my purse. I give thee this for thy sweet mistress' sake, because thou lovest her. Farewell. And, and she shall thank you for it, if ever you know her. A virtuous gentlewoman, mild and beautiful. I hope my master's suit will be but cold, since she respects my mistress's love so much. Alas, how love can trifle with itself. Here's her picture. Let me see. I think if I had such a tire, this face of mine were full as lovely as is this of hers. And yet the painter flattered her a little, but unless I flatter with myself too much. Her hair is auburn. Mine is perfect yellow. If that be all the difference in his love, I'll get me such a colored periwig. Well, her eyes are gray as glass and so are mine. Aye, but her forehead's low and mine's as high. <laughs> what should it be that he respects in her, but I can make respective in myself? If this fond love were not a blinded god, come, shadow, come, and take this shadow up, for tis thy rival. Oh, thou senseless form, 
thou shalt be worshipped, kissed, loved, and adored. And were there sense in his idolatry, my substance should be statue in thy stead. I'll use thee kindly for thy mistress's sake, that used me so, or else by Jove I vow I should have scratched out your unseeing eyes to make my master out of love with thee. Oh my God, what an amazing interaction between these two women. Is this their only scene together? Um, They will be on stage together in act five, but this is the first time that they're Oh, no way. That's cool. I just really love the female solidarity in this scene. It really just like... Yeah, well, it just, it really shows that Sylvia's (laughs) a really constant character. You know, she's like, Mm-hmm. she she has her beliefs and her convictions and she really sticks to it which i i really appreciate seeing that in a female lead especially of this time and also you know well and what's interesting is that i think julia and sylvia are very similar in a lot of ways in terms of their loyalty um but i think their loyalty manifests in two very different ways which is yeah i did get a a wonderful echo of you tearing yeah. up Proteus's letter in the first. And I was just like wondering, is Julia like having a like, well, that's, like, and that's what I felt. Yeah. Like that's what she... I felt when I saw her when, <laughs> when we were reading through this just now and, and she was tearing the letter. And the question that I have is, so I hand Sylvia a letter that I wasn't supposed to. I'm assuming that's like the mm-hmm. taped, is that the taped up letter that Proteus gave her or is that something different? And I just completely missed it. I think it's unclear, but I, that that would make sense to me that like she it's this, you know, Julia has her torn up letter that literally just has little tape marks all over it or little whatever. And then she accidentally hands it to Sylvia and she freaks out and is all of a sudden like, Oh wait, no, I need that one back. And Sylvia's like, no, wait, let me see that. And Julia's like, no, 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 no. Gotta go by. And like tries to leave. (laughs) Um, And how interesting I think She's going to do that in act five with the rings too. She's going to be like, oh shit, wrong oh, one. Yeah, Julia needs to, <laughs> she, she, needs, she needs to figure some stuff out. She needs some everyday carry yeah, bag. Yeah, truly. <laughs> truly. But you know, if that's, I guess if, if that is the case that that's that letter, I think it's just very, I think it's just telling that she carries it with her and keeps it close to her. Um, it just makes me so upset. You know, especially the, the, the her first soliloquy in this scene the how many women would do such a message and yeah. saying that she is doing all of this for her love like for him is just wild yeah. to me and it does like i said it, it it just shows how loyal she is you know and this is where mm-hmm. you you get some echoes of like early draft viola in this you know except the big difference mm-hmm. is that um when Viola meets Orsino, she's already dressed up as a boy and it's not that it's her man telling other people that she's dead, you know, but (laughs) there's a pretty, yeah, pretty important distinction. I, you know, if if Viola were to come into this, I think she'd be like, nah, bro. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, totally. Yeah. So I think, I think you see in this whole act, just a lot of different examples. I think this is, we were kind of touching on this Um, I think Mitch, you were saying this a bit earlier about like the, the patterns that you see of people's, um, sacrifice. I think you'll see patterns of loyalty Mm. and how those two tie in together. It is also distinctive, this 
female relationship, if I'm thinking of the other plays that I'm preparing right now, Taming of the Shrew, Catherine and Bianca do not have a relationship like this, right? It's very contentious. It's all about rivalry. Um, Adriana and Luciana in Comedy of Errors have a weird relationship as well that is also to me a bit about rivalry. This is not about rivalry. This is a very different Sylvia's curiosity about Julia really strikes me as like she wants to know who is this woman that was abandoned um and I it this scene makes me like both of these characters like even more somehow like I'm just like oh if they were in a different situation they would be besties you know and they would yeah there's there's kind of a a little tragedy in the fact that they they weren't you know brought up together and they couldn't be like Rosalind and Celia or whatever you know that they're like I always felt that I I feel that way about Viola and Olivia and Twelfth Night Mm. like that sisterhood that's like there but not there because yeah he thinks that she's in love with a boy version of Viola yeah Um, but I wonder like would Sylvia and Julia have the same type of interaction if Julia weren't dressed as a boy like, is it only it possible because they're, they're, Sylvia doesn't perceive her as a rival because she doesn't perceive her as another female? Mm. I think that's an interesting question. I would also just point to, she is telling a complete stranger uh, who is supposed to be the servant to Proteus about Julia, right? which to me is extraordinary. She's not like ignoring it. She's, she's saying he's unfaithful to one of his servants, right? She's, and to me, that is like a very bold thing to do. And it's such a surprising moment when I think in this strange way, we're, we're so trained to see if there's a play with two female characters, they're going to be rivals, right? Or they're going to be competitors in some way. And I think what's so delightful about this scene to me is even though she says she, when she talks about the rival, she's talking about the picture. She's not talking about Sylvia. And there's something so like refreshing about that moment where Julia says, she thanks you. You know, there is something like, like you just lose your breath. It's just so, it's such a refreshing interaction. Well, yeah, and I think it's a really important distinction that you just made about how the rivalry is with her picture and not her, because that is also with Proteus's idea of who Sylvia is versus who she actually is. So yeah, they're, the two women aren't, well, they're not in competition at all because it's all gross male ideology of these women and pitting women against each other, which is just, you know, a common theme even today. But, um, it is. It's just, it's, she's being forced to um, compare herself with his ideology. Mm. And then also just like, it's just heartbreaking when she's like, well, okay. So I'm looking at this picture. This is what he sees. What can I do to make myself as beautiful or as appealing to him? You know, and I think like, man, I wish, I wish it was, Julia was just showing up as herself to Sylvia because I think Sylvia would just be like, girl, if you knew what was going on right now, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to go fuck some shit up with this Proteus dude because <laughs> he's n- not great. Um, but yeah, 
So I, I just appreciated that you said that, that it, the rivalry is with her picture and not with Sylvia. Well, and the two definitions of shadow, right? One is like, you are the shadow of yourself. And the other is that you have the picture, which is Sylvia's shadow. Um, yeah, Sam. Um, I wanted to take like just a little bit uh, of, again, sort of like the generalized humanity in this and sort of something that's a little bit my first thought when people are like, oh, how brutal this scene was is I had the experience of being in high school or, or I guess middle school being desperately in love with a girl or I thought I was in love, but just desperate feelings for a girl who my really good friend then suddenly had a crush on and she had a crush on him. And somehow I became the go-between, like between the two of them in seventh and eighth grade. And I had friends later on that went through similar positions like that where somehow, and I do think that there's this like very human thing that can happen in clicks of friends where suddenly you, because you want to be close to a person are like, okay, yeah, I'll run those for you. Sure. Cause then I get to be next to that person. And so there is like kind of like a human element that's very young, right? I I'm not saying that this is good adult behavior, but if we code all of these characters at their correct ages for this play, which is going to be anywhere between like, the ages of like 13 to like 17 at the max end of it. Then suddenly we're in a high school drama and this scene makes way more sense in like the middle of a Mean Girls or, 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 or something that's taking place in the middle of high school drama. And, and, and so, and, and, and some of the sense making that goes on for why would people subject themselves to this and stuff. The shitty things that I subjected myself to in high school that I'm sure everybody here did for a variety of hormonal reasons and so on and so forth. But then to sort of just counteract the thing that I just said, this is the scene in the play where I have to question, it's one of two things, right? Either Shakespeare is not a good writer or the two titular gentlemen Verona are not the heroes of this play, right? And, and it is a strong dichotomy here that I am left with. They might be the protagonists, they might be watching a play that has their name in the title, but I don't even really see when traversed through and translated through history, how you could be sitting here as an audience member and not liking both of these two women more than you like the two men. Valentine maybe gets his own separate thing because he's kind of just like, like atlasing through the play. Like he's just kind of being like, I will do whatever. But like, but between the two, I, I, I'm kind of left with like, this is either intentional on Shakespeare's part and there's something else going on that I as a modern reader am missing or uh, or Shakespeare hasn't figured out how to make characters likable yet, but then there's some really well-constructed scenes. So this is where this scene and how I feel about these two characters, these two women, really, this is the point where I'm finally like, I can't deny this feeling anymore. Like, like these have to be my heroes, or I don't know how to describe, I'm just going to start going and saying the same thing over in different ways. But like, this is my personal audience member breaking point where this question has now really come to like the forefront for me. I think this is, this is a very good point, Sam. I will just offer as like a potential solution 
that a lot of criticism of this play has seen it as a satire of romance so that the play's title is inherently ironic that it really isn't about these two gentlemen and they're not in some ways gentlemen and their behavior is not gentlemanly and that it is actually a satire of a of received notions of romance and perhaps that is where we can get a little bit of juice out of that um Izzy did you have something too Yes, I just wanted to comment on that go-between thing mm -hmm. and that um, I think it's a lot more common with queer people um, because, you know, like it's not just, oh, my guy friend and the girlfriend, it can be both, it can be, you know, whatever. And I think that's just interesting because of what we know of, what the little we know about Shakespeare's sexuality and I just... I find that interesting because maybe it wasn't a thing early in life. Maybe it was later that it, I feel like the only, as someone who's like, who's queer that between a guy and a girl, like very like that, that has happened to me when I was very young. But <laughs> um, as you like grow older as a queer person, you just become, have a big group of queer friends. You're like, Oh, those two who are, Oh, and they want me to, okay, but I'm an adult and how do I deal with that fee feeling, you know? And I, I wonder, this is reading really far into it, but because <laughs> I think it's just saying that this guy was really straight, even if you take away the sonnets, doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I think it's that idea. Thank you, Izzy. And I think um, having just attended a really interesting colloquium on queer studies, queer sexuality and critical race theory as applies to Shakespeare. Um, I think there is, it's really important to these comedies to also acknowledge the fact that our like weird rigid ideas of heterosexuality versus homosexuality versus everything is a 20th century construction and that before that this the these rigid notions that contained the idea of sexuality did not apply during Shakespeare's time there were much more fluid ideas and relationship like James the first for example had everyone knew he was having like affairs with all of his gentlemen favorites and some of his female favorites like there was a much more and I think that is actually quite key to understanding these and also always remembering that this is a whole bunch of men on stage performing these roles with, and that young boys, very important, young boys are playing the women. And also I, I was thinking a lot about those young boys in this, um, in this scene, because this, the shorter one with auburn hair and the taller one with yellow hair, these must have been the same two boys because all of the females that are the same age in Shakespeare, one is always tall and blonde and one is always shorter and a brunette, right? So that's really cool to me that like, I wonder what they, it just makes me want to know, like, what was their relationship like, these two boys? Were they like the best of friends, like initiating all of these roles? And it just, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum to, to think about. And that there's already an experimentation with the perception 
of gender, right? Already in this first play, or maybe it's not the first play, but in one of the earliest plays, there's already an interest in what happens when a woman dresses up as a man and acts as a man. And usually, as we see in the plays, when that happens, they sure do get to do a hell of a lot more than when they are not dressed up as a man. So yeah, Sam. No, I, I think that the point that you brought up is like really important. Um, and and like when historiography, I won't go into that, but a thought that I've had as I've been reading this play that we haven't ever really touched on before that I've been sort of keeping to myself with other readings that we've been doing and other themes that we've been teasing out. But especially when we get to the complicated relationship in Act 5, I am not, and, and, and again, because and it's really important that you said these terms just don't exist. There was no such thing as, people were feeling attraction. And I wanna make that point when I say, but just the words homosexual and the words heterosexual didn't exist. Like they were just not modes of thought that existed at this time. And it would be very easy. And I am sure that productions have already mined this, but a level of actual attraction between Proteus and Valentine is a thing that we have not discussed yet. And is a thing that I'm not sure isn't there. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that that is something that if we spent more time and teased out, it might be possible to, to find those moments, but it wouldn't be something that I would want to remove completely from a performance, if that makes any yes. sense. I Where I would like to keep right. a possibility of that alive somewhere, because for, for the people that lived in this time, such clear cut distinctions just did not exist. Mm -hmm. Sex was bad with whoever that you were having with it in the eyes of God. And that, and, and then like, yeah, of course, oh, it was two men, like we're gonna use that as a reason to depose a king. But like the, 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 the modes of existence here are so much more fluid than we can really even conceive of it with the words that we know and that we're trapped with. And so I, I do think that it's not something that we've discussed, but this felt like a good opportunity to bring up the fact that um, I, I don't know if I'd call it romantic. I don't know if it's physical, but I think that there is something, I think at Flory, I don't speak Spanish, but I know that there's different levels of love and different ways that you can use different words to clarify different meanings of love. And I'm not sure that like lovers would fit. And I'm not sure that friendship would fit for what these two men feel for each other. Yeah, I've been um, definitely, oh, I'm sorry, trying to put no, out on their language. I've been totally trying. Yeah, their language, I think we've talked about this a little bit, is like very um, intimate, right, with each other. Yeah. Can, I, can I ask a question about this with the two, the, the scene with the two women at the end? Because I, I really am fascinated by this and want to hear, I guess, Ellen speak to this, like, uh, Ariana, I was really struck by you pointing out that the fact that Sylvia is saying these things to Proteus's servant is wild. <laughs> um, yeah. And also that like Sylvia is really driving the, the conversation about Julia in ways that it seems to me from the text, she doesn't have to ask the next question almost ever. Um I, I'm just interested if anybody had thoughts or Ellen, you had thoughts as you were saying that. I was literally like, thinking the, the same thing this whole time. And I wish that we, if we were rehearsing this play, I would love to do a take of this scene where, um, because you're right. Um, 
on 83, she's, you know, swaps from, uh, as soon as Julia says, she thanks you, that twigs and Sylvia, what did you say? And it kind of indicates to mm -hmm. me, it doesn't matter like whatever choice the director makes, like if Sylvia suddenly, you know, if she has an inkling that Julia is actually in disguise as somebody else or not, but I would love to have a pass at it like that. And because um, that's, that's definitely an interesting current there because she says, what sayest thou, dost thou know her? Does she think Proteus forsook her? Is she not passing fair? Is she just asks these questions. You're right. And it is, I think that's, that's uh, obviously, you know, there on purpose. And I would love to, to I would love to mind, mind that moment um, because I do think there could be something really gentle and beautiful about, particularly if you take the aspect that Sylvia is so sharp and perceptive and is herself thinking about running away. And suddenly, yeah, yeah. you know, we have this very convenient conversation where Julia comes up and, you know, from the audience's perspective, you're seeing these two actors who know each other in a scene together. I think it, um, there's something really interesting there. I would like to play it that way. Like maybe she yeah. thinks that something more is going on, but up to the director for I, sure. I think, Ellen, that that's totally justified in the text because like the amount of detail that Julia goes in is like someone who is like desperately coming up with a lie. It's like, oh no, like... You know, just to quote Archer, because <laughs> Archer, you know, it's like in one of the first episodes, like Cyril is trying to make an excuse to Lana. He's like, yeah, we're going down. To do and he comes up with something like super specific. And Archer's like, no, man, you gotta, you gotta make it. It's so obvious that you're you lying. When you <laughs> yeah. You've got to well, make it super like throw away. And she's like, and the garment looked great on me. And I was the right height. And everyone cried. <laughs> I mean, it'd be, it's very on brand for Julia, too, to, like, not be good at lying. <laughs> for her to just be like, oh, yeah, no, this is totally what it is. And this one time I, I, I was in a show and everybody was like, oh, my God, she's, he's just like Julia. And so did Julia. And everything's fine. And this is what it is. You believe me, right? <laughs> Puppy dog eyes. But I, I also, and, and just like even the detail of she's talking about Ariadne, right, who helped... Yeah. Theseus, like the choice of the mythological figure, like makes it so obvious, like this is who she's identifying with. To, so she's to me, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I know servant, I'm Julia. Um, and I, I, I do, I do just want to share, I, there is like, and I, I do hate this because it is it's such an overused way to describe female characters, but there is something super feisty about Julia and I think it also is important to note that Julia, the root of it is July, right? Which is the hottest month. And she's she's a hot lady with a lot of hot feelings. <laughs> I just wanted to acknowledge that. Julia has a lot of feelings. <laughs> it's definitely the more interesting choice for these two characters to be on stage. And yeah. one of them thinks that something is going on. That's definitely a more interesting choice than it just being a, a scene where the servant talks to Sylvia. I mean, I just think Sylvia is too sharp for it to not be that. Yeah. Honestly, I think just, it just, yeah, I, I agree. Just that's another money layer. At the, money at the end and like is so moved by, you know, it's just, yeah. But it could, who knows? Yeah. I like, I like leaving it ambiguous. Yeah. I'm curious to know if you feel like you are motivated by love or by like a sense of stubbornness and, and, and passion and he, right like are you just like god damn it i'm gonna get him or 
you know, has, has it gotten to that point where you're like, I have done so much. I've dressed as a boy in this freaking cod piece is driving me crazy. Like, you, know, you know, like, or, you know, like, I'm just, I'm wondering if it's gotten to that point where now it's like the train is on the track. Like I'm, I'm just going for it or like yeah. what, what is the overriding emotion for her? Do you think? Like, no, I think, I think that's actually a really, it's not one that had necessarily occurred to me, but I think it's a really good point. Um, I, but I think it, it is like this, she's showing this, this level of devotion, right. And being like, and so she can go back to him when she does like the grand reveal, you know, cause I'm sure Julia is also thinking about like when she's going to reveal herself to him that like I've Sebastian and I'm, I've been Sebastian this whole time. And then her being like, but look at all these things I did for you because my love is so unconditional that I will do anything for you. Um, so I think there's a lot of that mixed in, but yeah, she's also, she's she's a stubborn woman in love because like you obviously see so much like the first time we meet her at this place she's just being so stubborn right <laughs> um so i think she is she's determined and she and she acts on her she, she gives everything to everything i think um so i i do think that's what's happening here but i and i think it, it's at its root is all for her unconditional love for proteus so that she could be like, look, I am, I, I, we've made these vows and I am your devote servant. And no matter what, I'm here for you, which we also see later on. I'm really looking forward to exploring how all of these relationships resolve, because I think interpretively you can do a lot with the end of the show and you can really like, make a lot of choices essentially yeah mitch sorry i'll do this quickly because I, I know we're trying to wrap up <laughs> but we and i hate to bring proteus back into the conversation um <laughs> but we didn't actually talk about that little scene between proteus and julia yes, in disguise yeah. and i just wanted to make uh two quick points about that so like talked a lot about how proteus um is mostly concerned with his own emotions and mm-hmm. uh and the sort of concerns of of the male sphere and like the other yeah um and the the sort of like dehumanizing of the women in his mind uh and i i stand by all of those comments um i think it's interesting that he experiences julia as a man um in the scene and um and and says says that something he's that that uh, Sebastian strikes him as truthful, even as Sebastian is in disguise, which is funny. Um, but, mm-hmm. but two things. First of all, his language is very cold. All of a sudden, here in describing and very dismissive of of Julia. But then, I also think it's interesting uh, and intentional that there's these lines um, about trusting Sebastian and and wanting wanting him there chiefly for thy face and thy behavior which witness bringing good, bringing up fortune and truth. And I think it doesn't have to happen in that speech. I think Shakespeare is making a point uh, of there is something in Julia that is attractive genuinely to Proteus, even if he doesn't know it uh, at this Mm -hmm. point. And I think that what Shakespeare thinks he's doing or no, what Shakespeare is attempting to do is to like make the end of the play. Okay that they end up together, right? Like, I think that seed is being planted here. Um, and I think just structurally, I wanted to note that, um, that like, truthfully, there is something about Julia that Proteus in his subconscious is drawn to. 
Yeah, I think that is really important. Thank you, Mitch, for bringing that up. And I did note there is something like almost cruel about the interaction with with Lance that that I noted. It's like maybe it's spiraling down into that that the depths of where this violence is going to come from. But yeah, there's there's it's like he's losing the lightness um, that he had gradually and it's just everything and and just the way that he exits too i like what you'll find me i'm the one who's sad like like, it's just an amazing way to go uh where that thou shalt find me sad and solitary (laughs) welcome to 2020 (laughs) um anyway thank you all so very very much uh 